City Lights is a community of faith in Jesus, seeking to equip people to exalt Him and extend His kingdom. This message is from our study through the Gospel of John called Believe, Jesus Changes Everything. If you are encouraged and challenged by this message, please share it with someone, post it on social media, or let us know by leaving feedback on our iTunes podcast. It's going to be a great time. You guys feeling good? Woo! It's going to be a great morning. I want to invite you guys to open up with me to John chapter 13, starting in verse 21. And I will uh, I'll read our scripture for us. Uh, by the way... Um, if you're just jumping in here, uh, I've mentioned it before, but John chapter 13 is, the, is really the beginning of Jesus. When I say this, it's kind of hard to exactly describe, but pinpoint, but it's part of his private ministry. John 1 through 12 was a public ministry in which uh, a heralded gospel was extended to anybody that would believe. But we saw at the end of John 12 that he kind of stops his public appearances. He was showing up less on the TV and on Twitter and on Instagram. He was doing more private with his, with his close friends. And we're going to see in the, in the next couple of chapters that, um, that the, the temperature gets turned up quite a bit. And that the, the kind of what Paul calls the milk of the gospel kind of ceases in the, in the way of he starts to really talk about meat. You're going to start to see the, the, the discussion of the Holy Spirit about bearing fruit that remains. You're going to start to th- hear about persecution. Some of the topics that you don't see from 1 through 12, we get to enjoy and see from 13 through 21 or whatever and beyond. And one of my favorite things about this, and I don't think that we can miss it, and this is part of the sermon as well because it lends context to, to the audience here, is that, is that the, disciples, the disciples are in this room, and literally three, two years ago or three years ago, they were common, un- insignificant, kind of uh, undriven and unpurposed fishermen, lowly people, okay? And this is, this is my point. And because of an ounce of faith, that Jesus would call this a mustard seed of faith, which is the very, it's a huge difference, but it's a, it's a paradox of both a small difference but a massive difference in significance, is that they're now privy and audience to the very secrets of God simply by faith alone. And here's why this is important. If you guys can remember, there was a parable that Jesus told about 10 workers that he hired out in the field. And you remember how offended he makes the workers feel that worked for 10 hours by paying the ones that only worked for one hour. He paid them what? The same amount. You guys remember this thing? And so, so, so here's, here's what's, what's crazy awesome about this is that none of those disciples earned anything. They inherited that room to, to sit with Jesus, that intimacy room. The reason why he's called people to believe is, again, not just to go off into a gold, gold-plated house, but to know Jesus. What if we ate rice and beans in heaven, but we learned, that, learned to enjoy them in joy, and, there, and there, there wasn't gold in our toilet seats up there? Would we be as happy if God wasn't in heaven, right? So Jesus invites them into this intimacy place, and literally this small seedling of faith. In, in Matthew, it talks about the rich and the spiritual get richer, and the poor will get poorer. This small seedling of faith, not because they've earned, but because of inheritance. They get to sit at the feet of Jesus. God washes their feet. We talked about last week. I mean, don't, don't let this become so common and an old hat that we don't understand the weight of this significance. Whether you're 5 or you're 80, this is my point. We all have access to the same amount of Jesus. We don't ever graduate and earn higher places in the kingdom of heaven. We're either in or we're out. And the access to breakthrough, ask of wisdom and I'll give it to you. That's what he says in, in James, right? Anyone that needs wisdom, so the myth that you're here 
to take steps so that you can grow and get something from God that you don't have today is a rat race you'll never find the end of. Everything that he wants to give you is accessible right now for free or it's not accessible to anybody. To five to 80, it's all accessible by faith. By grace, we've been saved through faith so that nobody can boast. So we're children at the table and we're just his friends at his feet. And the only reason why we're here is because he called us, not because we did anything. And that's an important thing to remember. So, uh, starting in verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus whom he was speaking of. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, What are you going to do? Do it quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So, that, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. You probably can't tell this by looking at me, but one of my favorite movies is Dumb and Dumber. You probably can tell just by looking at me, right? That's the irony of that statement. Kyra, my bride, who's here this morning, our first Valentine's Day together, bought me the Dumb and Dumber tape on VHS. And, it, and you can tell how worn a tape is because of how fuzzy it gets through the different parts. I mean, I've watched this. Me and Kurt literally could go through a whole day and completely operate our entire day just by communicating lines. You guys know the lines of this movie? I mean, they're just, in, they're just indelible marked cultural icons in our, on our brain. That, his little head in that limo window, and he's like, hey, good morning. You know, my driver's a little bit lost. You know, these lines, they're just, they're just right there, like even 10 years later. You guys remember this? And, and, uh, and to be frank, I mean, I think, I think in one part I laugh at it because, you know, it's dumb and dumber, and that's the, just sheer comedy, right? It's just like the funniest clownish way to make a movie or tell stories just to be let's see how dumb we could get but to be honest I think about it in full sobriety these days as an adult and I'm really not too far off from Harry and Lloyd you know what I mean like I, I was telling the team earlier like I couldn't I can't really guarantee you that if somebody dropped a million dollar briefcase that I wouldn't end up with a full snowsuit and a tassel like boots like I can't I there's no real like certainty that I can tell you that would not have ended up to be me I've always wanted to wear a powder blue tuxedo like that's been a dream of mine the car was really nice um, I literally did get lost uh, going cross-country to a wedding sometime before GPS so lost that I actually missed the wedding so the whole driving out to wherever they went Kansas instead of Colorado uh, not above me you know or not below me um, and great story one of my first dates speaking of that snow store uh, the snow scene when they like go skiing and throw snowballs at each other my one of my first dates with Kyra this is probably after the time that she bought me this VHS I literally, I literally took her sledding, and we all got snowsuits on. I took her sledding, and I, I don't know what was in my head, apparently Harry or Lloyd or both. I got on my little toboggan, and I skied into Kyra. Like, and you're like, on accident? I'm like, no, on purpose. Like, it was a, I was a charmer back then. And like, I hit her like, probably going 35 like, at the speed of a Camry and, uh, and took a chip out of her shin so much like it would move around. 
Um, so I can't say that I'm that I'm much more evolved than than guys like Harry and Lloyd, you know. But uh, I bring that up just to, just to laugh and to chuckle. You know, C.S. Lewis talks about you know the, the the power of humor and the importance of laughing and and thinking of ourselves simply and not taking ourselves too seriously, taking Jesus seriously, um, because because it's a heavy subject today. And actually, if you do look at the the story for what it says, Dumb and Dumber, that story is about betrayal. You know. Like, in, in, in other ways, like, if I could explain it to you, like, what's the moral of Dumb and Dumber? Is there meaning to Dumb and Dumber? The moral of Dumb and Dumber to me is pretty simple. Like, some people are dumb, and some people are dumber, and some people are so dumb that they betray their friends, right? Like, that's the whole, whole humor of it is that, like, they're the only people that would put up with each other. But yet, because of betrayal, because one of them took Freda Felcher, and then the other one went skiing with Mary Swanson, and she touched my leg— you know, because of these stupid things that they do, it's like the epitome of dumbness is to take the ver- the, one of the greatest treasures you'd ever have in your life as a friend and betray them. Or to, to, to allow somebody to betray you and become so unforgiving that you just betray them back. That's literally what that mo- movie is about. There's something different about being hurt by a friend, right? It's one thing to get hurt by somebody on the outside, somebody that's a stranger, somebody that you've already... You know, you're not ambivalent towards that you've understood that is antagonistic toward you. Like, there's something about that that's, that's sort of clean, but there's something prevailing about getting hurt by someone you let into your heart. And the worst thing about betrayal is the fact that oftentimes the betrayal, although it's, it's, it's short, uh, it's played out in a short amount of time span, oftentimes it's not just betrayal, but it's the residual of unforgiveness that gets you the most. It's the residual of unforgiveness that haunts your heart, that keeps you trapped, that keeps you up at nights. It's the residual of unforgiveness that robs you not just of your past, but your present and your future, that films your, your, your perception of the, of the world, that breaks your uh, possibilities of trust with people that are here and now. And you literally, just because of unforgiveness, learn to just live out the cycles of your life over and over again so that you're here, but you're never really here. And you never get hurt again, but you also never trust anybody enough to hurt you. And so the ministry, the ministry of, 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 of forgiveness in the place of betrayal is easier said than done. And it's easier preached, I'll say that, than it is to walk out and live. But forgiveness is not just waiting for the pain to go away, because sometimes it doesn't. And forgiveness is not just waiting for somebody to pay you back, because oftentimes they won't. Forgiveness has to be not just a stone. This is what I want to talk about today. Not just a rock that you write somebody's name on and throw into the ocean, a prayer that you throw up at worship at the end of this sermon. It is a literal repositioning of the economy of a relationship between you and God and you and the people around you. And until we breach and bridge the understanding of what that cross actually means in our life, we'll always know we don't have understanding for it by the way that we break relationships around us. So Jesus is a great high priest. He's not only a savior in order to forgive us of sins, but he's also a pastor and a shepherd in in that he teaches us how to live. And so uh, Hebrews 4 just teaches us he's a great high priest, not just because of position, but because of actual influence. He's lived our entire life and experience of pain and temptation without sinning. And so we keep our eye on, we're tempted to think that we're Jesus at this table. And I just want to relieve us of that burden and of that arrogance to think that we play the role of Jesus in this story. Let Jesus play the role of Jesus, that we might be his disciples, freely access to his audience and freely access to his presence, but but not taking light what he's doing and and what he's working through in this chapter. 
verse uh, 21, the first one out of the gate, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So Jesus here is uh, enjoying a Passover feast. It is his last supper. It is the biggest supper of the year. Passover is the biggest Jewish holiday and tradition, religious celebration of the year. And he chooses to spend it not with the public crowds, with the many, but with the few, his closest companions. But I think it says a lot about Jesus, and we need to think about and let it stick the fact that out of his closest companions, he still allowed his enemies to be there. We have to understand that Jesus knew all the way back from probably the beginning of time, but at least explicitly stated in John 6 that he knew that there was a devil in his midst, that there was an enemy at his table. But if we look at books like Luke, especially books like Luke, which makes, makes a lot of emphasis on something called table fellowship, we realize that that's not really an exception to his norm. He's been eating with enemies his entire life. Right? Table fellowship was not just... Mm, a business meeting that you would have with your life insurance agent, like table fellowship was uh, an intimate, connecting, hospitality, bonding moment that you would share with close friends and family. I'd put it this way. Table fellowship isn't just, mm, I get along with you. Table fellowship is, I belong with you. So the reason why I took so much flack and criticism is because he would eat with people like both the Pharisees and the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes and made no real kind of acquiesce to any sort of political agenda whatsoever. He didn't care what people thought on the outside. He only cared about the one in front of him. And so he, he made it his mission and really his life's goal. We shouldn't be surprised because Judas sitting in his, in his midst isn't really actually, if we think about it, any different from Peter sitting in his midst, who's going to betray him too, as well as all the disciples who probably aren't mentioned their kind of secret sins, is that he, he, he decides to have his last meal on earth with his enemies on purpose, not on accident. Because the whole purpose of the gospel, if you look at the actual story, the story that's being told is what? The gospel is a story about God loving his enemies. The gospel is not a story about God coming to earth to make friends of people that liked him. The gospel is about a man laying down his life for people that didn't like him. It's not about him making acquaintances that could promote him and help him. It was about him specifically, intentionally, and with a priority dealing with sharing life with and ultimately laying down his life for people that hurt him. That was his mission. That was his agenda. That was his modus operandi. Romans 5.10 validates this and speaks to us uh, as the audience, not just as the disciples. Romans 5.10 says it this way, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled by God, by death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This, the purpose of this meal it preaches to us that, you know, here's the point. We weren't friends to God first. We were enemies to God first. And we didn't love him. He loved us first. And a huge shift starts to happen in the way that I look at him and the way that I look at the world. When I recognize that I didn't invite myself to that table, he's the only one that invited me. And he's the only reason why I'm there. I'm not the one that picked my feet up. He's the one that went after and got me. That's an important, that, we, that, that cannot be made more significant. Is that once you get into the room and once you get into the table, the food is always for free. And it's never to be earned. But we can't ever forget the front door either. That when we got into the room, we never paid a fee. He invited us as an enemy, somebody who hurt him. Not as somebody that was there to be his friend. Verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table on Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. 
So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said, Lord, who is it? I think that what's not said here is one of the most important uh, points to be made in this little run of the chapter. What's not said is the fact that Jesus had every reason to, every uh, opportunity to, and every ability to call out the sins of not only Jesus, but every single person at that table. Which really sort of makes you think, in terms of the way that we would measure love and correction in love, if Jesus literally has uh, a reason to protect himself from being actually killed by somebody and doesn't call out their sin, it really helps us measure when and where and how and to what degree we should be calling out people's sins, right? Matthew 7 says it pretty clearly. We have enough in our own eye, we have enough to worry about in our own life before we would ever have need or room or, or, or space to try and call out what's going on in somebody else. There's a difference between when somebody finds out a sin in you that's an advocate to you and somebody that is an enemy to you. And Jesus is a friend to all of his enemies at this table. Because, because when somebody finds out something uh, about you and they're, and, and they're your enemy, there's no way they hold that back. There's no way. You know how quickly... Not let alone, let's say, put aside the supernatural God card where he could have just, like, closed up Judas' esophagus, you know, and out of the rage and the sheer, like, just, you know, good judge, good kind of anger, righteous indignation that he has for Judas. He could have absolutely physically done that. But you know how quickly he could have just told Peter? You know how, you, know, you saw how uh, quick Peter was to pull that sword and chop off that soldier's ear later on in this narrative, right? How quickly could that have happened if he would have called one sin against the other? And so... So we see Jesus restrained and not, not at all rebuking evil with evil. Or, or not, although he had complete license to do it, complete ability to do it, he chose intentionally not to repay evil with evil. We should be thinking about Matthew 5, right? 38? I'm going to read the whole thing because it is just good. It's just real good every once in a while to read this. You have heard, this is one of the most, to me, offensive verses that I can think of in the Bible towards my flesh and towards, like, the parts of me that are not yet touched by God. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. God had ability to, he had license to, not only resist, but to attack and preemptively judge, condemn, and physically extradite this man, Judas. He had enough in him in John 6 to know that he would have called him a devil. But it says in John 5.38 that even if a person has allowed the, the, the workings in the government of the dark place to govern somebody's actions, none of that gives you license to repay evil with evil. None of that does. So he goes to the extreme and he says, there is never a reason to repay evil for evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs you and do not refuse the one who borrows from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, and I eat with you preaching this message. You shall love your neighbor, oh no, but you should, you should love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that they may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. 
For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do, you not, have, do not tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do, you not even, do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus redefines love here. Takes the most important word that we can think of, not in life, but in religion and life combined, is love. And literally says to us, love actually doesn't end at betrayal, it starts at betrayal. Love starts at offense. Love starts at sacrifice. Why? Because because mutualism and contract and and self-promotion, all of that encompasses liking people who like you. If you want to start to see the gospel power, interview the people that you don't like and start to measure what the gospel has done in your life. This is where the job description starts for him. So this brings us to an important question. Because there's a lot of gaps in the actions of Jesus that people like to read into the motives of Jesus based on the actions of Jesus. But the motives of Jesus, just like the motives of anybody else, need to be up for discussion, you know? And I think ultimately, I think the motives of the way that we presume what Jesus is thinking when he does what he does actually reflects more about us than it does about him. Because it assumes he would probably be visualizing and understanding love and service and 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 gospel the same way as I do. But this is the question that I want to ask you. When Jesus says, love your enemy, does he mean it? Hopefully the answer is yes. Two, when Jesus is sitting at that table, is he an escapist monk who has dulled his senses so much and he's so earthly minded that he's not heavenly aware so that he's almost like a monastic, masochistic, ascetic person So that when Judas is betraying him, he doesn't feel it anymore. And I would argue to you, obviously, no. Because at the very beginning of the passage, we understand that he's troubled. Like, he's not so absent heaven-minded that he's not earthly-minded as well. He, He is attached and present in everything that he does. So the second possibility is this one. Is Jesus sitting at that table, looking at Judas, justly and righteously angry with contempt, but only because he's so strong, because he's so self-controlled, because he has so much fortitude and faithfulness that he bridles that contempt with love. Or is it possible that he, as he loves his enemy, actually is saying what he means, he's loving his enemy. There's a psalm in Psalm 85, which I think is really helpful to us understanding the heart of the Lord towards his enemies. Because remember, before he got here, everybody was his enemy. He came to save enemies. We were his enemy. Outside of of Jesus' help, we are his enemy. We operate in the opposite kingdom. And this psalm, it says in Psalm 85, verse 10, it talks about and previews the cross that nobody knew about at the time that it was written. And it defines this space at Calvary like this. That Calvary is the place where steadfast love and faithfulness righteousness and peace kiss each other. So inside of God, this scripture along with everything in the Bible, Old Testament and New, talk about the incredible, like, paradoxical dynamic inside God's heart of his unfathomable, unwavering, and unending justice. The need and the desire to see that people get what they deserve. 
Like Micah 6.8, it says that we should walk humbly and love mercy and do justice, right? That, that we would create an equitable society where people get what they're worth, people get paid for what they do, people earn what they have, and people that commit crimes and, and do wrong to others will also get uh, wrong done unto them. There's this need for justice, and there's something in us that's still residual in that. When somebody hits somebody or somebody um, offends somebody or acts out on a child, there's a, there's a righteous anger that, that boils up inside of us that I would argue echoes off of God's heart. But at the same time, you can't ignore throughout the entire Old Testament as equal and as a powerful and as prolific and an impulse for God's justice throughout the scriptures is also this impulse for mercy. Not just that people would get what they deserve, but people wouldn't get what they deserve so that love could be possible. And all throughout the scriptures in the Psalms and in, and in, the, in the Torah and in the law, you can see almost this kind of angel, you know, the, 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 the dichotomy of those two things wrestling against each other, trying to find harmony. And Psalm 85 tells us that ultimately those things needed to find rest, and they did find rest in the cross of Jesus. Because what happened is, is that Jesus, full of mercy, looked beyond sin, not equated himself equal with God, but humbled himself as a servant and with joy approached the cross and executed perfectly. Jesus lived out mercy on the cross and justice was served upon Jesus completely. This is the gospel. That the anger and the contempt that was rightfully belonged to Judas, that Judas would go on from that room to sell his Savior for 30 pieces of silver. And I would dare to say that some of us sell Jesus for even cheaper than that. And the anger and the righteous indignation that belonged to Judas's like me and him, Judas and me and people like us, the righteous indignation that belongs to rapists and pedophiles and murderers and, and liars and extortionists, and slave drivers, the, the type of righteous indignation that none of us are, are exception, accepted from. When you read Matthew 5 and 6, that as soon as we call somebody an idiot, we're guilty of murder. None of us are the exception to that rule. That righteousness was not thwarted. It was executed on Jesus. And mercy, perfect mercy and perfect justice, they kissed at the cross so that love could be could, could usher an era. And so when John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world, it's not just for us, it's also for Judas. And it's also for Hitler. He either loves everybody or he loves nobody. And so I don't believe that he sat across that table looking at Judas with a bridled contempt. There is no contempt in Jesus because that sells the cross too short. Anyone that you look at, anyone you look at, or anyone Jesus looks at, or anyone Judas, Judas looks at through the lens of the cross can only be filled with compassion. There's no more room for justice. It's all been exhausted on Jesus. So we're either all forgiven or we're all not. So, so the, the narrative continues on. And I believe that those scriptures I presented gives us a license to view this through the lens of compassion. Jesus is not mad at Judas. He is sad for Judas. He longs for Judas. His will is that no man would perish. I heard a preacher one time say the question, which is much debatable, what did John hear when he put his ear on Jesus' chest? And some have said that the heartbeat of Jesus is that none shall perish. That none shall perish. That none shall perish. So I believe that when Jesus' heart left with him, 
that Satan, the only enemy, ultimately entered into Judas. And Judas knew where he was headed and wished he could have prevented it. Because he, he allows for people to choose in, he also allows for people to choose out. And Judas went against God's will. That's the only way that we can see it. It is not Jesus' will that any man should perish. Jesus answered, it is, uh, no, Matthew 27, 3, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned and betrayed against innocent blood. And they said, what is it to us? See to, see to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hung himself. We can't look at that scripture and think Jesus won and Judas lost. We can't look at that scripture and think we won or Peter won or John won and Judas lost because we're, Je we're Judas. You have to understand, that could have been us. There's nothing separating me from doing that. And the minute that I tear up sin, I create a, a stratosphere of sin, a, 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 a steps and degrees of how deep somebody's sin. Now hear me. There are specific consequences that happen on an earthly realm to certain people based on certain crimes. Make no mistake about that. But when it comes to Jesus, none of that changes his perspective on people because the cross is just too important and significant to allow him to think that way. Jesus only looks, only looks at his children, all of his children, as lost children. And he's mourning that. I believe that Jesus, Jesus washed Judas' feet I believe that some of the tears he shed when he, when he mourned over the death of Lazarus, which was ultimately a spiritual, uh, a spiritual sim symbol of what happened to Judas, he was actually crying in some part for Judas as well, the same as he cries for us. And I believe that Jesus died for Judas. I believe that it was not his will that Judas was, would, would perish. And when we create boundary lines between apostasy and this unforgivable sin or, or this person that did that trespass and they deserve this or they deserve that, I believe we step out of the very gospel that gives us any life or hope or peace in the first place. Because here's the crazy thing, and it's a mystery, and it's hard to understand, but this is what I believe. When you speak out loud or think in your heart a judgment against somebody else, there is a simultaneous and inseparable judgment that you put on yourself. Because your heart testifies against yourself and knows that the same measurement that you're casting on somebody else, somewhere deep in your heart you committed the same sin. And so the irony is, is that you're actually hurting yourself more than you're hurting that person. You can either live in an era of justice or you can, or you can live in an economy of grace. But you can't have one foot in the one and one foot in the other. It's impossible to be split, to be a divided home. So the minute that you cast judgment against somebody else, you do the same thing. And this is, I'm going I'm to show you in scripture. This is... This is these are verses that are difficult to, to comprehend and in some ways paradoxical, but I'm just going to read them to you because I think they speak for themselves. Matthew 7, 2, I referred to it earlier. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Matthew 6, 15. But if you do not forgive others of their sins, your Father will not forgive you for your sins. I think it's powerful because in some of the other scriptures, when Judas is found out, the disciples don't just say, show me who it is. All the disciples unanimously, including Judas, say, is it me? Because those people close to Jesus realized that wasn't beyond them. It's only grace that keeps us at that table. 
It's grace that got us to the table, and it's grace that keeps us to the table. And when we start thinking we're impressed by our own reputation, that we deserve to be at the table for some other reason other than grace of Jesus, we put ourselves in a dangerous and precarious position. So, I believe that forgiveness is, is more than just throwing a rock or throwing a stone, saying a prayer, or saying sorry to somebody, or, for, or I forgive you. Forgiveness has to be an entire economic change. It has to be the way that you, you think about everything. And the most helpful parable I, I can think of is the one where it says the one person, the, the king, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who forgave somebody of 5,000 denarii, right? Or 5,000 units of money. The guy leaves for joy and is freed from that prison. And then somebody, what happens next, right? Somebody comes up to him and asks him to forgive him of $5 of debt. And the wicked servant says, it says in the scriptures, the wicked servant did not forgive and extend the same grace from the king to that person. And so he was put right back to the same debtor's prison that he started in. Listen, this is important. I don't know in a room this size the type of awful, inhumane, uh, offensive, and abusive sins that have been committed to you physically, emotionally, and spiritually, and maybe you don't even know how to count some of those things or measure some of those things. But this is the truth we have to stand on and tell our heart to believe in even when we don't feel like it. The weight of a horizontal sin from one imperfect person to another imperfect person will never outweigh the weight of an imperfect person sinning upon a perfect God. The perfect creator the giver of life, the one who breathed breath into our nostrils. We thought we knew better than him. And we, and we abused his children. We talked negatively about ourselves. We hurt, we hoard, we're selfish, we're greedy. An imperfect person acting imperfectly towards a perfect God. But when God pours his mercy upon us, not just as an emotion, but when he meets the qualifications of both mercy and justice perfectly at the cross and executes our, his perfect justice on Jesus instead of us, then we, we forfeit the right to execute justice on anybody else. We completely forfeit the right. These are three pillars that I hope are helpful. Um, and we're, and we're going to wrap up here. But three pillars that are, I hope are helpful in your process and my process for forgiveness. Number one, Let me say this before I, before I start on that point, but let me just say this. I, I think it's important because, you know, when Chris preached yesterday, uh, last Sunday, he ultimately was preaching about humility, um, which is the opposite of pride, because he was speaking on how Jesus came down and washed disciples' feet. And today I'm talking about forgiveness, and then next week I'll be here to talk about love. But I think that, I think that there's a reason why they're coupled, because I, I really do believe in the same way that, that pride and unforgiveness are cousins, that also humility and forgiveness are cousins. You know why? Because both of them, uh, unforgiveness and pride, they both come from the same source. They come from entitlement. They come from the belief that somehow, right, uh, uh, pride is about power and forgiveness is about relationship. And when we sit at the table with God, we enjoy both of those things. But, but pride and, and unforgiveness somehow miss the fact that he gave those things to us and we never earn them. And as long as we think that life is an earning and not a gift, we will always walk in unforgiveness and we will always walk in pride. So we can kill two birds with one stone with that one. That's pretty good, right? So point one, we have to understand Romans 5.8, but God showed his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. 
We will have no grasp of forgiveness until we understand that we were an enemy before we were ever a friend. We didn't seek for God. We didn't search for God. And at one point or another, we acted and have acted and maybe continue to act exactly the same way that people act to us in, in, the struggle, in our struggle for unforgiveness. We are not beyond. We're not graduated from. We're not better than. We're not. The only thing that's, that's different from those at the table and those that are not at the table is grace. And if it becomes anything else, we put ourselves in jeopardy. Point number two, I remain at the table only because of the cross. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9 speaks for itself. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not for your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. You see the entitlement that begins to, to fall apart because of the cross. You see, see the clarity that comes about, the lightheartedness, the yoke of easiness and rest that comes about, that I don't have to sit in the seat of God to judge others. I just get to love them. Thank you, God, that I don't have to play God and judge and create lines of justice that would be above me, beyond me, and ultimately never as good as what you've accomplished on the cross through justice. So God, let your justice reign on the cross rather than my justice in my world, and we can all experience your kingdom together. Number three, and this is the hardest one, I already preached before, but I will be judged by the judgments that I make. Ultimately, the, the, the key that I lock up on somebody else is ultimately the door that I lock on myself. The line that I draw between me and Judas or me and Hitler or me and fill in the blank, whoever it is that you're thinking of, that is the same line inseparable that I draw between me and Jesus. That's the same line. I, I, when I partner with a, a law or a, a way of doing things, a culture. When I say that this culture is right and I want to promote the culture of judgment, that life is about doing better and trying harder, and that if you haven't done as good as me, you're not worth as much as me, that somehow not only that I am doing better, that somehow I am better. When I step across that line, I step into the same judgment that I've created for somebody else. I'm hurting myself more than anybody else. I want you guys to stand, if you guys would stand with me. And um, really, I just think that my heart's ambition this morning is, is to point you towards the comforter and points you towards the forgiver and points you towards the one that was abused in every way and never retaliated evil with evil. And I think there's a powerful exchange. I really do believe that God can expedite things and he can allow what has taken 10, 20 years in your life to do could literally be changed today. He could expedite it. What used to take a long time could happen very quickly. Because, it's, again, it's not about what you know. It's about your surrender towards the one who holds you. The entrance of the disciples to Jesus' feet, the access point to have water washed on their feet and to have access to the Holy Spirit, who is going to be the comforter better that Jesus would go, that the Holy Spirit would be in us, the access point is not earning, it's inheritance. And so, God, we, we, we recognize... Again, forgiveness is not, is not ignoring or pretending like pain doesn't happen, right? We just recognize the prison of pain of betrayal. We recognize that sin happens from us but also happens to us. And the sting of betrayal, the sting of divorce, the sting of broken relationship is real, God. We, reckon, we accredit that, we account that. But when we look upon the inheritance that you've given us, heaven and righteousness and peace and joy and perfect uninterrupted intimacy with Jesus, there's no way we can account that uh, offense towards us as, any, as greater than the, than the blessing and the, and the peace and the grace that you've poured out on our life, God, without measure, God. 
And so we, th- we, we thank you that there's a way out. We thank you, God, that there's a way out. We don't despise having to forgive somebody. We thank you that you've given us a way out, a way to live, a way to have joy again, a way to have peace again. God, we don't want to have our past just impose its way onto our future, God. We don't want the cycles of generational curses of unforgiveness and and anger and resentment and judgment to, to take any more of our life and take any more of our friends and take any more of our future, God. We insist that the cross isn't something that just happened long ago, but the cross is reorganizing the economies of our relationship today, God. And so we accept your economy of heaven over ours. And we surrender, as we accept your forgiveness, we surrender our right to define and judge and and measure the ways that that we create judgment and justice in our world. We just say it's your judgment and your justice to have, and we relinquish the control, God. It's so much better to be in your light. So thank you, God, for touching, and thank you, God, for healing. And thank you, God, that it's not an emotion, that you've already done it in the cross. And we can look to the cross as a fact, not a feeling. We look to the cross as a fact, and forgiveness is not a fact, it's not a feeling, it's a fact. It's a legal change that happened in the kingdom of heaven, which supersedes the kingdom of earth. And at the end of the day, all earth will answer to heaven, not the other way around. And so we just relinquish control, and we, we, we open our hearts to your government over ours, God. You're a better king than ours, and we get off the throne that you would sit on it. We know there's blessing. We love you, receive in Jesus' name.